everyone, and welcome to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 40, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we are going to take a sidestep out of the comics, newspaper, and radio series for a look at a special two-page Superman story, originally published within the pages of Look Magazine. Before we get into that, though, unfortunately, I've got some sad news to report. Those of you who are friends with the show on Facebook already know this because I posted about it the day after it happened, but Jack Adler passed away on September 18, 2011, at the age of 94. Adler was a member of DC Comics' production staff for 35 years, beginning in the mid-1940s. In 1960, he was promoted to assistant production manager, and in 1975, he was promoted again to production manager and vice president of production. If you've read a Silver Age or Bronze Age comic book from DC Comics, odds are extremely high that Adler had a hand in coloring the cover. Adler... Simply saying Adler was in charge of color for DC Comics is a pretty big understatement. Adler contributed many of the techniques used to color covers during his time with DC, and he had a strong hand in creating the look and tone of DC's brand. While Adler didn't join DC Comics until 1946, he apparently worked for the company independently prior to that, and according to some reports, it was Adler that did the color separations to Action Comics number 1. However, I don't think that's ever been confirmed, and likely never will be. As I mentioned, I linked to a Remembrance by Mark Evanier on the Facebook page, and I will put a link to that, as well as one by Paul Kupperberg in the show notes if you're interested. Adler's contributions to comics, especially DC Comics, would be tough to understate, and he will definitely be missed. My thoughts and prayers go out to his family, friends, and acquaintances. Hey everybody, my name is Michael Bailey, and this is the trailer with a truly epic ending to my new show about Batman, appropriately titled Bailey's Batman Podcast. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a weekly program that looks at a month in the life of the Dark Knight Detective, starting with the books bearing a March 1983 cover date, which is where my solid run of the characters' comics begins, and moving forward until... Well, at least until the books that came out in 2005, because that's where the solid run ends. Each week, I will give you a full synopsis and review of every major ongoing Batman title, with brief stops along the way to look at the important specials, miniseries, one-shots, and Elseworld stories just to keep things interesting. I'll also be telling you what other books Batman appeared in that month, as well as what was going on elsewhere in the DCU. It is going to be all Batman all the time as I look at over 20 years of the character's history. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the epic ending to this trailer. You ready? The first appearance of Jason Todd. Death in the Family. Nightfall. Epic. No Man's Land. Do you have chills yet? All of that and more will be covered on Bailey's Batman Podcast every Tuesday at baileysbatmanpodcast.com
Look Magazine was a tabloid-sized magazine that began publication in 1937 and ran through late 1971. It was a photography-driven magazine, very much in the vein of Life Magazine, but with a more general interest focus than the news and photojournalism that Life leaned towards. The issue that we're going to be looking at this episode is cover dated February 27, 1940. I did a bit of research and couldn't turn up any information about a release date. The magazine was coming out twice a month at this point, but even so, it wouldn't surprise me at all if it was predated and very likely came out a week or two before that. Regardless, though, it's got a price of 10 cents, apparently the going rate for periodicals in 1940. The magazine's cover shows Rita Hayworth. At this point, Hayworth had just come off Only Angels Have Wings, which was released in the summer of 1939 and starred Cary Grant and Gene Arthur. Hayworth had a smaller role in the film, but it garnered her a lot of attention, and the movie studio started building her up as a big star. In 1941, the year after this magazine came out, she starred in both The Strawberry Blonde and Blood and Sand, both of which also starred future Superman George Reeves. Though Reeves' role in it was very minor, The Strawberry Blonde is what made Hayworth a major star. Her popularity then exploded through the war years and as she became a major Hollywood star and sex symbol. Shortly after the war in 1946, she had one of her best-known and iconic roles in Gilda, which, bringing it back once more to Superman, co-starred future Jonathan Kent, Glenn Ford. Gilda was actually the second movie they were in together, both having roles in The Lady in Question in late 1940. But Hayworth and Ford would go on to co-star in several more movies together and have an even closer relationship than that throughout the years. I know I've said it before, and I often do so kind of tongue-in-cheek, but these things, it really does eventually all come back to Superman. But turning inside the magazine, the Superman content here is a mere three pages. We've got an introductory page, followed by a two-page Superman story done especially for the magazine. The introduction page is bannered, Superman! New comic strip hero proves there's big money in fantasy. And that's followed by a block of text that reads, An imaginary man popped out of an imaginary planet less than two years ago. Today, he is one of the most popular of all comic strip characters. He is Superman, a character who combines the best talents of a Robin Hood and a god. And every day, his feats of strength, speed, and benevolence bring thrills to millions of newspaper and comic magazine readers. Co-fathers of this amazing character are Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, both under 30. As boyhood friends in Cleveland, Siegel and Schuster dreamed of what they would do if they were the world's strongest men. Superman is an extension of their dream and proof that Americans still like their fantasy raw. We then have a Joe Schuster-drawn picture of Superman and an illustration of the Superman of America Club certificate, and it says that 50,000 kids are members. 50,000 kids. That's an astounding number to me. Most comics today don't sell that many copies a month, much less have enough of those readers willing to sign up for a fan club, especially one that costs two and a half times the cover price of a comic. But at the bottom of the page are three excellent photos. The first shows a man in front of a wall of comics. He's pulling one down to hand to a group of eagerly awaiting kids. 
He's not pulling down a Superman comic, unfortunately. It looks like All-American Comics number 7, but from the angle, it's kind of difficult to tell. There is a Superman comic right next to it, however, Action Comics number 18, which was released in September 1939. The caption on this particular photo states that Action Comics sells 600,000 copies a month, with Superman selling a million copies a month. I don't know how accurate those figures are, but they align pretty closely with what I've heard from other sources throughout the years. To put that number in perspective for those who don't monitor month-to-month sales of modern books, the top-selling book of any given month today typically hovers around 80 to 90,000. Major crossovers and, you know, big hyped events or storylines will cross the 100,000 threshold. Occasionally, there will even be one that crosses the 200,000 mark, but those books are very rare. Um, No book in the last decade, to my recollection, has come anywhere near the 300,000 mark, let alone the 600,000 or 1 million mark. But anyway, the other two photos are of Superman's creators. The first shows Jerry Siegel banging out a script on a typewriter, while the other shows Joe Shuster inking a page of Superman artwork. Those of you who are friends with the show on Facebook saw this particular photo back in July as I posted it on the Facebook page on what would have been Schuster's 97th birthday. It's really difficult to tell, but it looks like he's working on the first page of the second story from Superman number 4, which, coincidentally, had just hit the stands when this issue of Look was being published. There's an interesting tidbit in these captions that gives us a hint of the writing process, because beneath Siegel's photo, it tells how Siegel writes the scripts, quote, after the sequences have been discussed and plotted in a six-man conference composed of Siegel, Schuster, two editors, the publisher, and the circulation manager. The publisher would have been Harry Donenfeld, and one of the editors would have been Whitney Ellsworth or Vin Sullivan, depending on when the text was written. I don't know who the other editor and the circulation manager would have been, but my guess is that it was likely Max Gaines and Jack Leibowitz, respectively. If it was Max Gaines as the other editor, then that, then that sheds a little bit of light on, as I mentioned back in, I think it was episode 20, yeah, episode 20, why Max Gaines sent the letter to Jerry Siegel concerning the uh, contents of Superman number one. But anyway, with our introduction out of the way, we're ready for the main event, a two-page story entitled How Superman Would End the War. It was written by Jerry Siegel. And art-wise, like all stories of the time, it was attributed to Joe Shuster. But I really doubt it was Joe Shuster alone. I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Paul Cassidy did the inking here. Our story opens with Superman racing across the German battlefield towards the Siegfried Line. He shrugs off cannon fire and artillery shells, surprising the German troops from their underground bunkers. Tearing into the forts, he twists cannons like pretzels, then rips the top off the west wall before signaling back for the French troops to begin their own onslaught. Leaping into the air, Superman dives directly at an advancing German airplane. Shrugging off gunfire from the plane, Superman throws a mighty punch, smashing the plane, and causing the pilots to exclaim, Himmel! Was ist dies? Later, clearly tired of raising trouble on the battlefield, Superman swoops down, crashing through the roof of Adolf Hitler's mountain retreat. 
Superman encounters some resistance, but easily plows through the guards as Hitler cowers in the corner. After dispatching the guards, Superman, in what I'm calling the shot heard round the world, snatches the murderous dictator by the throat. I'd like to land a strictly non-Aryan sock to your jaw, but there's no time for that. You're coming with me while I visit a certain pal of yours. And man, I'd love to hear Bud Collier do that line. Now, one might argue there's always time for a sock to Hitler's jaw, but I'm not going to argue with the guy that just plowed through a row of tanks, and clearly Hitler here wasn't either. Anyway, Superman leaps out of the building, towing a pleading Hitler behind him, and races through the air. Shortly, Superman descends in Moscow, alighting on a balcony where Joseph Stalin is advising his troops. Grabbing the Russian leader, Superman blows through the gathered horde and takes off, carrying a dictator in each hand. Arriving shortly in Geneva, Switzerland, Superman interrupts an assembly of the League of Nations and throws the two dictators at their mercy, demanding justice. As Superman watches on, the court finds them guilty of modern history's greatest crime, unprovoked aggression against defenseless countries. And that is where our story ends. Even in this era where there isn't the, you know, the deep, nuanced characterizations and the intricately woven plots, it can be very difficult to tell a story in two pages. While there are a few non-humor and gag features at, at this point that are four pages, most features in DC and all-American comics at this point are six, eight, or even thirteen in the case of Superman. But even with the special story only being two pages, this was pretty exciting. The downside to it being two pages, though, is that I just don't have that much more to say about it. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. He, he comes in, he grabs Hitler, he grabs Stalin, throws him before the League of Nations, the end. I would have liked to have seen some setup or explanation. I mean, is Superman on a mission from President Roosevelt? Or is he doing this on his own? Just, you know, saying, I'm going to stop this mess now? It doesn't matter. Again, it's only two pages. And the why isn't the point of the story. The point of the story is the title. How would Superman end the war? But still, <laughs> the, the reader in me would like a little more explanation on that stuff. Even if they didn't have room for it. But along those lines, it's very similar to what we've seen in stories to this point, where Superman has dealt with warring countries. They even reference it in a block of text at the bottom of the two-page spread that reads, Siegel and Schuster gave Superman a big job in this episode when they assigned him to solve the international situation just for look. But such tasks are nothing new for him. He once stopped a war somewhere in South America, by dumping a munitions profiteer into the trenches for a dose of his own medicine. On another occasion, he plucked two opposing generals from their tents and told them to settle their differences with bare fists. They knew no differences, shook hands, and made peace. And those are both references to occurrences way back in Action Comics number 2. And it's interesting that they would reference a story published almost two years prior rather than the more recent war-influenced stories. But that's really neither here nor there, I guess. This story is notable for being the first significant time a story took Superman and put him in our world, so to speak. We have seen Superman, you know, going to Washington, D.C., but dealing with fictional politicians. And we've seen thinly veiled allusions to real-world political situations, both at home and abroad. And we've also had offhand references to pop culture of the time, 
like the Professor Quiz joke from a few episodes ago. But this, even though this isn't in continuity, so to speak, you know, whatever that meant in 1940, this has Superman leaping out and grabbing two real-world European leaders and real threats to the world at large and doing what everybody wished they could do but obviously couldn't. If never before, Superman as a concept definitely fills that role of wish fulfillment right here. As for the art in this story, and again it's only two pages so it's hard to make a completely fair comparison, but the art here is absolutely solid. It's the standard eight panel grid, just like in the comic books. The first panel of the story is actually a double panel serving as a sort of splash. Also just like the comics, just not as big. One detriment, I guess, is that the art is oddly colored. It's not full color like the comic stories. Instead, they've used the duotone coloring or the spot coloring style, uh, like some of the, uh, what was it, I think, Scoop Scanlon was like that in some of the earlier issues of Action Comics, once they moved away from the strict black and white. There's nothing wrong with that style of coloring, per se. While I think Schuster's art stands fine in a black and white, especially when he's got an inker like Cassidy, it does add a bit of dimension to it. Unfortunately, they've chosen a rather odd coloring scheme here, wherein Superman's shirt and cape are white, but the S on his chest and trunks are red, and his legs and boots are colored pink, just like his flesh, which <laughs> sort of makes it look like Superman is only wearing the trunks, but no tights. But that's really just a small nitpick, and really only one I'm harping on, I think, because I'm a modern-day reader looking backwards. I, I doubt readers at the time even noticed, much less dwelt on it. Another minor point, but one worth pointing out, I think, is that to this point, this is the largest a Superman story has been printed. Golden Age DC comics were roughly 7 inches by 10 inches, where this magazine is 11 by 17. So we're looking at a 50% upsize in the art. I doubt Schuster and Cassidy did anything different on their end. Even in 1940, artists typically drew larger than the work was printed, but I thought that was kind of a neat historical footnote. But the art here is just very good. Uh, there's nice action and nice detail, and perhaps the strongest point, and, and a critical one in a story like this one, is that the likenesses of both Hitler and Stalin are spot on without being cartoonish or caricatures. And yes, we'll get those cartoony likenesses and racist depictions of Tojo and the like down the road, but I like that they stuck with the realistic looking likenesses here, because I think it would have really hurt the feature otherwise. Copies of this issue of Look Magazine pop up on eBay somewhat frequently. They can be pricey. I've seen them going well upwards of $100 or even $200, depending on the condition and who's bidding. But it shouldn't be too hard to latch on to an original if you've got the cash and really want to. If you can't afford that, however, despite not being published in the comics, the story has been reprinted several times. Among them are The Greatest Superman Stories Ever Told from the 1980s, Superman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told from 2004, and Superman in the 40s. It was not, unfortunately, included in either the Archives or Chronicles line. However, it was included in Superman the Sunday Classics from Kitchen Sink, uh, so that's one more place to get it. Part of those reprints, I believe, are a colored version of the story. 
The Sunday Classics version, at least though, is reprinted in its original duotone coloring for those of you who are, you know, like me, and like to see things as they were originally presented. But still, there's several places to grab this story. Unfortunately, the rest of the magazine, including the introductory page, has never been reprinted that I know of. I don't own a copy of this magazine myself. However, I was able to find what is at least a partial table of contents. Other articles in this issue included several other war-related features. Among them was a six-page article by Dorothy Thompson titled, What It Means to Be Neutral. Dorothy Thompson was a really well-known journalist and a writer and a radio broadcaster. In 1934, she was the first journalist expelled from Germany for being critical of Adolf Hitler and the rising Third Reich. Very much a real-life reporter in the vein of Lois Lane. <laughs> Without the insane obsession with Superman, that is. Stories hold that she was also the inspiration for Katherine Hepburn's character in Woman of the Year in 1942. Other war-related articles in this issue include material from uh, General Hugh S. Johnson, as well as a photo essay from Lawrence Stallings. As one might expect, since she was featured on the cover, there was a four-page photo spread of Rita Hayworth, and there was other celebrity articles about Benny Goodman, Myrna Loy, Fred McMurray, and an article from Tommy Dorsey about the jitterbug. There was also an article marking the 30th anniversary of the Boy Scouts, as well as, on a slightly more somber note, the 8th anniversary of the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, which, as I mentioned in episode 37, was also coincidentally referenced on the Superman radio show, of all places. Presenting Supergirl's Cosmic Adventures, a podcast dedicated to the continuing adventures of the Maid of Might herself, Supergirl. Episodes can be found at supergirlpodcast.blogspot.com. To give a bit of context about when this story was published, war had broken out in Europe with the invasion of Poland the previous September. The Soviets attacked Finland at the end of November, resulting in them getting kicked out of the League of Nations in December. Food rationing had also begun in Great Britain, I think in December. So, while the war was still in its infancy, things were definitely heating up. Meanwhile, though, the United States was still, officially anyway, neutral. In the comics, we've seen war-influenced stories creeping into Superman's adventures. And it was no doubt the same with other heroes, though stories and covers dealing specifically with Hitler and the Nazis and his associates are few and far between. And we are definitely still more than a year away from something so blatant as a character landing a haymaker square on the Hitler's jaw on the cover of a comic book. Especially in a DC comic, as they, to me anyway, looking at comic covers from various companies at the time, were a bit slower to start using that kind of imagery. But while I'm not going to say this is the first time a comic book superhero took on Hitler and the Nazis, I will go so far as to say that I think it was undoubtedly the highest profile character to do so. And in those terms, I kind of like to think of it as a first strike. But regardless of who was first, having an American comic book hero create
created by two Jewish teenagers making short work of Hitler and his army probably isn't something that sat too well with the Nazi party. And it didn't. Somehow, a copy of either the Just the Superman pages or possibly the entire magazine made their way to Germany, and in the pages of the April 25, 1940 issue of Der Schwarzkorps, which was the newspaper of the Nazi SS, the paper's editorial team responded. The article was titled, Jerry Siegel Steps In, complete with a tiny star of David dotting the I in Siegel's name, and it was illustrated with the same photo of Siegel that appeared with the Look article, as well as scans of the first three and final two panels from the story. Unsurprisingly, they left out the panels with Hitler cowering in fear and being manhandled by Superman. The article begins, Jerry Siegel, a spiritually as well as physically circumcised man whose headquarters is in New York, is the creator of an artistically conceived character graced with a healthy appearance, a powerful physique, and red swimming trunks, who flies through the air with the help of a white cape. Now remember how I mentioned the uh, coloring earlier in the episode, hence the white cape and red swimming trunks remark. But the article then goes on in a rather long-winded diatribe full of anti-Semitic insults against Siegel and Superman. It relates the events of the story we just talked about, again, conveniently leaving out the parts where, with Superman making quick work of Hitler and even going so far as to distort events in the story in order to make fun of the character in Siegel. Really, it's nothing new. I mean, the SS and Nazi propaganda did this type of thing all the time. But it's funny to me that they would spend so much time and effort to rebuke a fictional comic book character. And I think that speaks as much to Superman's popularity as the desperate lengths that the Nazis went to to protect their image. The article ends with, Now normally we could overlook Jerry Israel Siegel's degenerate liberal-slash-democratic fantasies, but there's a catch to it. Superman's cunning godfather is a wolf in sheep's clothing, working from out of the shadows. Exploiting the idealistic aspirations of America's children, he appeals to them with cries of strength, courage, justice. But instead of intelligently utilizing the audience's willingness to believe and supporting truly serious virtues, he sows hatred, discord, injustice, laziness, and criminality in young hearts. Jerry Sealingwax stinks. Pity the poor, unfortunate youth of America who must live in the polluted atmosphere, not even noticing the poison that they swallow daily. Apparently, the German word for sealing wax is Ziegelach. Uh, it's spelled like Siegel, just with L-A-C-K at the end. So, calling him Jerry Sealing Wax was a play on his name that simply gets lost in the translation. Beyond this article, there's also a rather pervasive story that, because of this Look magazine strip, either Joseph Goebbels or Adolf Hitler himself denounced Superman in a fiery speech to the Reichstag. This is a story that has had a number of variations and has been spread in books, newspapers, and among fandom for years. It's even worked its way into places like Time Magazine as well as comics and Superman history books. However, fan and writer Dwight Decker sat out to get to the bottom of it, and in an article printed in Alter Ego Magazine number 79, he came to the conclusion that it was nothing but a myth grown out of mixed-up facts and urban legends. It's a really great article, even going into the SS newspaper rebuttal and picking out some of the peculiarities, trying to suss out exactly what they were trying to say. Decker comes to the conclusion that while anything is possible, 
and that Goebbels or Hitler might have at some point made remarks about Superman, that no real proof has surfaced. And he makes a pretty fair case about how the legend likely came about. I had planned on sharing more about Decker's line of thought, his research, and you know what he uncovered, but you know I, I don't think that's really fair to Mr. Decker or Alter Ego and its publishers. So since the book is still available, I want to encourage you to head on over to tomorrows.com and grab a copy for yourself. Again, it's Alter Ego Magazine, issue 79, and as of this recording, it's on sale for a measly $5.91, which is less than the cost of two new comics from DC or Marvel. Plus, the issue has all sorts of other stuff in it, including a long interview with Joe Schuster's sister, Jean, there's an interview with Michael Golden, who also did the issue's cover, which shows Superman tossing a tank, as well as a tribute to Steve Gerber and, and other features. It's a really great issue. Sorry if this comes off as a commercial. I, I don't want it to be that, and I certainly don't get a kickback. But Alter Ego is a great magazine that's well worth your money, and it just wouldn't be right for me to sit here and read you know, what they've put the work into assembling. So... I will put a direct link in the show notes, or you can head over to tomorrows.com and track it down for yourself. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage, I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. 
Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from, from Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for yet another episode. Now that we're in October, the show is resuming its regular weekly schedule, but we are completely back on track and have made up all the episodes that I missed over the summer, so I am very happy about that. Next episode, I will be rejoined by Charlie Niemeyer for a look at the second storyline from the Superman radio show, so I hope you'll come back. Before then, though, I invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com. There you'll find show notes for this and all episodes. I'm not sure if I'll put any scans from this story. Yeah, I'll put a couple. Probably not Probably not as many as normal, as, as a normal full-length story, because it's only two pages, but I'll put one or two up. Either way, at the site you'll find show notes and scans for past episodes, so be sure to check those out. The site will also give you the link to the show's RSS feed, as well as iTunes. If you subscribe via iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave an iTunes review. It helps folks find the show and know that it's worth downloading and listening to. I did get a new iTunes review a couple weeks ago, and uh, I'll read that in an upcoming episode. But if you go right now and leave another one, then I can read them both together. And how awesome would that be? At the site, you'll also find links to the show's Facebook and Twitter feeds. You can follow the show on both networks and give feedback uh, that way as well. Or you can email me directly at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com with any questions, corrections, or comments you might have. 
Don't forget to stop by the Superman homepage at supermanhomepage.com. Steve Yunus posts updates whenever I have new episodes, and there's all sorts of great Superman content there as well. The show is also proud to be a member of the Superman Podcast Network at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Surprised to hear a woman singing in my house, eh, Johnny? That's quite a surprise. Hilda, are you decent? Me? Gilda, this is Johnny Farrell. Johnny, this is Gilda. So this is Johnny Farrell. I've heard a lot about you, Johnny Farrell. Really? Now, I haven't heard a word about you. Why, Ballard? I wanted to keep it as a surprise. Was it a surprise, Mr. Farrell? It certainly was. You should have seen his face. Did you tell him what I'm doing here, Bellin? No, I wanted to save that as a surprise, too. Hang on to your hat, Mr. Farrell. Gilda is my wife, Johnny. Mrs. Bellin Munson, Mr. Farrell. Is that all right? Congratulations. Oh, you don't congratulate the bride, Johnny. You congratulate the husband. Really? Well, what are you supposed to say to the bride? You wish her good luck. Good luck. Thank you, Mr. Farrell. My husband tells me you're a great believer in luck. We make our own luck, Johnny and I. I'll have to try that sometime. I'll try it right now. Tell him to come to dinner with us tonight, Ballin. It's an order. Come along, Johnny. We let Gilda get dressed. Look your best, my beautiful. This will be the casino's first glimpse of you. I look my very best, Ballin. I want all the hired help to approve of me. Glad to have met you, Mr. Farrell. His name is Johnny, Gilda. Oh, I'm sorry. Johnny is such a hard name to remember. And so easy to forget. Johnny. There. See you later, Mr. Farrell. 